Well, church, it is again good to be with you this morning. And it's a blessing to just walk through the Sermon on the Mount with you guys. And I wanted to share, before we dive into the Sermon on the Mount, just a little bit about myself, maybe a, a secret. Maybe it's a secret in quotes. Some of you may know this. It's a particular love of mine. And uh, no, it's not Indiana basketball, which I need to point out, won against the number one team in the country yesterday. That needs to be said this morning. But uh, that is one of my loves. But another one of my loves in life are corgis. Corgis. This right here. This dog. Oh, my goodness. They're, they're wonderful. Amazing dogs. We used to own a corgi. It is a beautiful dog. <laughs> Let me tell you more about these dogs. It is a dog, Mr. Fry. All right, I love these dogs so much. Back in December, a friend of mine said, hey, did you know that there is a movie called A Very Corgi Christmas? So here you go. A Very Corgi Christmas. And it's like one of those Hallmark kind of like romantic... This is not my, my genre of like film, okay? But my friend told me this, and I said, my family is watching this film tonight because it's got a corgi in it. And I, I slogged through it. I mean, it, I watched it because of the corgi. It, it wasn't very good. But... Um, <laughs> It's exactly what you would think it would be. But okay, these, these dogs, these corgis, let me tell you about them. So they were bred to be herding dogs. So they're actually pretty robust and strong gods. They're kind of like a big dog body on, with, with little legs. That's basically what they are. But they're built to run all day and to be actually pretty agile so that cows, they would herd cows, and cows, you know, would kick at them because, you know, they don't like being nipped at. But because they're so short, their kick would go over them, and they also had the ability to roll out of the way. So that's what they were bred to do. They have incredible amounts of energy. I mean, these things will run all day. Our corgi, his name was Gus. He was named after the, uh, the, one of the main characters from the TV show, Psych, in case you're wondering. That's where the name comes from. But Gus, it was as if you took all the nuclear power plants in the world and put them into one little dog. And that was our dog. I mean, he was nonstop. You could walk him for an hour. And I'm not talking like, you know, the, un the bad kind of walking where he's pulling at the leash, but like attentive, good, faithful walking at your side where he's kind of looking up at you the whole time. An hour. And that would not tucker him out. I mean, this, this dog, all the energy. So wild, so crazy. Um, we love that dog, but um, he is no longer with us. And by that, I mean, he's not dead. We just had to give him away. So he's no longer with us with us. But Gus did not need to be coaxed to have energy because of who he was. He was a corgi, so that's the way that he was. Animals don't need to be coaxed to be who they are. They just live out their animal nature. And as we saw in the passage we just read, there's something true of us as Christians. Jesus says, you are salt and light. But the truth is, we are often terrified to live out that identity, to actually be salt and light. Now, we're in this series called Greater Righteousness as we're walking through the Sermon on the Mount, and we're seeing how Jesus talks about having a greater righteousness. And it's not a righteousness that's external, different moral or pure acts that you tack on to the external self, but instead it, it's a righteousness that comes from within and goes out into who we are or what we do. Who we are leads to what we do. Now, this passage today, we are still in the intro of the sermon as Jesus is kind of setting us up for what's come or what's coming, and Jesus is describing his people. And just as corgis are going to corgi, we want to see today that Christians can be Christians. Christians going to Christian. 
Also, I picked, in light of the, the famous but maybe not so good so- song, Shine, Jesus, Shine, today it's going to be Shine, Christian Shine is where we are going. All right, let me start off with just our first main point. So we're diving in right at the beginning. First point, persecution because of Christ is both expected and good. Persecution because of Christ is both expected and good. Let me read verses 11 and 12 again for you. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, in this main point, I want to talk about the because of Christ and then the expected and good portion of it. The because of Christ and the expected and good. So because of Christ... It's pretty clear. You know, this isn't just persecution for persecution's sake. It's persecution because of Christ. Because of Christ. It's identifying with Christ, proclaiming Christ. Not just, oh, people don't like me, but, oh, people don't like me because of Christ. Because of Christ. But it's also expected. It's expected. This is a when, not an if. When you are persecuted, not if you are persecuted. Sometimes we see persecution as something that's not the norm of the Christian life, and I think normally in our society, persecution doesn't really feel like the norm, but I think historically, when we look around the world and think about people who are faithfully living out the gospel, persecution ought to be the norm. Jesus talked about persecution as the way of the Christian life. And he references, hey, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And there's a long Old Testament tradition that stretches all the way back to the very beginning in chapter 4 of Genesis with Cain and Abel, where we see the righteous, those who walk faithfully with God, are persecuted by those who do not. The Bible basically starts with that kind of story, saying that this is normal. And Jesus says, this is good. This is good. And last week, we kind of looked at how Jesus is flipping all of our understanding of what it means to flourish around. And we saw how this word blessed really has this connotation of flourishing. Flourishing is the one who is persecuted. Flourishing are you when others revile you. Flourishing are the poor in spirit. Flourishing are those who mourn. Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, etc., etc. We now suffer... That's flourishing while we await Christ's return and the fulfillment of his kingdom. God says that is good. That is good. Remember, losing is better than winning. And Jesus gives this curious command. He says, rejoice. Rejoice, for your reward is great in heaven. So why is it the flourishing life under persecution? Well, he's saying there is a reward that's coming. And sometimes that can strike us as a little like, I don't... I don't want to earn my way to God because we know we don't earn our way to the Lord. And sometimes even as Protestant evangelicals, we can hear the thought of a reward and it makes us a little uncomfortable. Oh, am I walking with Jesus just to get something? C.S. Lewis has a good illustration that I think makes a lot of sense. And he said, if you have somebody, a a young man who's seeking to to marry a rich widow because of her money... He does receive a type of reward, but we would look at all of that and say, ah, yeah, that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not a right ordering of love and marriage. He does receive a reward, but it's not a good reward. 
And sometimes that's the type of reward we think of with what Jesus is saying here. Like, oh, I'm kind of enduring this thing just to get something in the end. But C.S. Lewis says that it's more like this. Marriage is the reward of love. So if someone loves someone, the reward of that is marriage. And you love them and you're moving towards marriage. You want marriage. You're looking forward to the reward of marriage. But you're not doing it in this kind of selfish, like, oh, I need to get marriage type way, as if it's this cash prize and you don't really care about the other person. Instead, it's a naturally ordered reward. It's a good reward. And it's good to labor for it when you're in love. Does that make sense, kind of the difference between those two? And so here we have this kind of reward, that as we walk with Jesus and endure persecution, we can rejoice because we know there's a reward at the end, not that it's like something wholly different from what we want and what we need or what's a part of walking with Christ, but instead we have the reward of Christ himself and being in his kingdom. And the idea of walking through persecution shows that we do indeed belong to him. We do indeed belong to him. When we speak against the idols of the culture around us, that's when we start to experience persecution. It's when we call out, hey, you guys are worshiping something you shouldn't worship. Jesus lived in a very religious society, yet he called out their idols. He was ultimately crucified because he was calling out those idols. He was the Son of God who came with the mission to die on our behalf. And they did not like that. They did not like the way he talked, the things he said, the idols that he called out. They opposed him from the start. I think there's idols in obvious places like North Korea or even the Pacific Northwest or the East Coast. But what are our idols here that we need to speak out against that might lead to persecution if we speak out against them? We have to ask that question. Because there are idols here. There are idols in every single culture. And as we speak against them, that's what invites that persecution. But at the same time, that's what God calls us to do. So we see this point again. Persecution because of Christ is both expected and good. But this is hard. Persecution's hard. And in light of persecution, our tendency is often to hide. Right? Like, we don't want to speak into those idols, or we don't necessarily want to identify in a strong or uncomfortable way with Christ. We don't really want to press into other people's lives and declare Christ or talk about Him. But Christ, when He says this, you know, He starts off, you know, hey, blessed are you when you're persecuted. He then shifts into the, the salt and light, kind of giving His hearers an encouragement and saying, yes, persecution is coming. But let me tell you about who you are. Yes, persecution is difficult. But let me tell you about what I've made you to be. The identity I've given you. So let's look at this again. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
So when you see these two phrases, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, there is a strong emphasis on the you. In the Greek, it's an emphatic, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And not you ought to be, or you will be, or you should be, or you might be, or maybe someday in the distant future, perhaps you will be. No, you are. You are. It's a declarative statement about our identity as those who follow Christ, as Christians, as little Christs. And it's plural. That you is not you individual, but you collectively. You, church. You are. You are. You are meant to be salt and light in community with one another. So let's talk about this salt and light, starting with salt. Here, you are the salt of the earth. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? That's a famous phrase now, even in our vernacular. That person is a salt of the earth person. What does it mean? Does it mean preservative? Does it mean flavor? Commentators are pretty divided over what this might mean, and so a lot of people, they just kind of generically yield to, well, it just means that you influence the world. The actual phrase is, you know, if salt has lost its, uh, or sorry, if salt has become foolish, which doesn't sound right in English, uh, there's probably a, a, a semantic uh, or Semitic uh, idiom that's going on here that Jesus is referencing. But basically, this idea of salt stops being salt-like. What do you do with it? It's no good. And by the way, salt itself you know, sodium chloride doesn't actually lose its saltiness, but the salt they had could get diluted and washed away and that kind of stuff. But I, so we, we, we struggle with this idea. What does it mean to be the salt of the earth? And we can get kind of tangled up in trying to, to kind of decipher it and figure it out, but I think Jesus actually gives us a pretty, pretty clear understanding of what it means. Because this phrase, you are the salt of the earth, stands in parallel with you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Parallelism is a common kind of Semitic a poetic device where you have one line and then kind of a similar line after it, and they go together. They explain one another. They're, uh, one of the ways that they work is they're synonymous. Not always, but I think particularly in this case because of the parallel uh, vocabulary, they're meant to mean basically the same thing. So if we're asking what does it mean to be salt... Well, what does it mean to be light? And here, that's a little bit more clear. You are the light of the world. You know, light reveals. It gives clarity. It drives back darkness. But how does it do that in a Christian context? What do we mean when we say those things? Oftentimes, we think, oh, I'm the salt of the earth, I'm the light of the world, and we can make it have this really generic, watered-down ugh-ness that just sounds sappy, and it's like, oh, I'm just a nice person, and I make things better around me, yay. Jesus is saying something far more profound and beautiful, because it's coming from Isaiah 42. Matthew has loved looking at Isaiah, and here is no different. So if we look back in Isaiah 42, the prophet, he's looking to the time when the Messiah will come and restore all things. This is what he says, Behold my servant, that is the Messiah Jesus, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. 
He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Isaiah uses this idea of light and dark a lot, and we even looked back around Christmas time, this idea that uh, those living in great darkness, a light has dawned. This idea that Jesus the Messiah is bringing light. Jesus is bringing in the kingdom of God. That kingdom is full of light. It's full of hope. There's no need to despair. All of the wrongs will be made right. We will see God. We will understand what He is like. In the words of J.R.R. Tolkien, and I've said this before, all that is sad is becoming untrue. All that is sad is becoming untrue. We see here that he's opening the eyes of the blind. He's bringing those out of prison. He's bringing freedom and life. Those things that we long for. And that's found in Jesus. And Jesus takes this idea of saying, I am the one who is bringing light in life, of restoring, of making dry bones, making dead bones come alive. This Messiah then says to his people, you are the light of the world. Not because we have the special light that we manufacture ourselves, but because He has given us His light. And like a mirror, we reflect that light into the world. Not that we're just nice people. Get along with our neighbors. Live at peace. But no, we bring true life. Reconciliation with God. We are heralds of Christ's coming kingdom. That is the light that has come. When Jesus says, you are the light of the world, he is saying that we bring the message of God to the world. Not we're nice to our neighbors, which you should be nice to your neighbors, by the way. But he's speaking of something far more deeply. Saying you can bring the message of hope to your neighbors. That is the light that has come. So here's our second point. We are the salt and light of the world because we herald Christ's kingdom. We are the salt and light of the world because we herald Christ's kingdom. We don't just make things better. We're bringing good news. News of forgiveness and restoration and joy. That's what we get to do. Oh, it makes me excited. This is a good message that we're bringing, right? Sometimes we are terrified to share this. But it's a message of hope. It's a message of light. When a child is scared of the dark and you want to nurture them and encourage them and help them to see that there is indeed hope, you don't just leave them in the dark and say, you know, have you know, good luck. No, you turn on the light. You show them underneath the bed and in the closet. You bring light, and that's what we are doing. We are bringing light to broken people as we share the gospel. We have been transformed and forgiven, and that leads us to proclamation. There's a hard truth that you won't be persecuted if you don't shine. If we don't actually let that light out, would someone describe you as a shining light? Would someone describe our church 
as a church that actually shines? When they come and they see us, do they say, yes, this is the light of the world? When they interact with us in our community, do they say, those people are the light of the world? To some, it'll be the aroma of life. To some, it'll be the aroma of death. But it'll be an aroma. Or are we nothing? Are we stale air? May we be an aroma to the world around us. Be light. Okay. Jesus gives this command of let your light shine. Let, in verse 16, let your light shine before others. That's like the big command of this section. So what does it mean to let your light shine? Well, ultimately, because I think this imagery of light is coming from Isaiah and this idea that the kingdom of God is dawning on the world, ultimately being the light means declaring the good news of Jesus. The news of his kingdom. And Jesus says, let them see your good works. Sometimes we take that and we use it as a cop-out to be like, well, I'm just going to do good things and then people will know the light of Christ through that. But that's not actually what, Jesus isn't just saying like, hey, just do good stuff. He's talking about being a particular type of person. The type of person that we just saw in the Beatitudes. Someone who's poor in spirit, who mourns, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. That type of person, though, gets persecuted, and is actively proclaiming the kingdom. That type of person is a herald. They don't just keep to themselves. They're a herald of the good news. That's the good works. Being a particular type of person, and as we are a particular type of person, we declare a particular message. We have to both identify and proclaim with Jesus. We are a type of people, and by nature, those people are proclaimers. We're not just passive, hey, look at my life. We're, look at my life and hear what I say. There's two ditches that we can fall into. The one ditch on the one side is, yeah, I'm just going to show people what I do by my good works. You may have heard the, the famous quote, you know, share the gospel, use words when necessary. Well, that's falsely attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. He didn't actually say that. It's also a foolish statement. It's like saying, feed the hungry, when, use food when necessary. To share the gospel, you have to use words. People can't come to saving faith in Christ unless they actually hear the message. So the one ditch is, I'm not going to say anything. That's one ditch. The other ditch on this side is, I'm only going to be a proclaimer, and I'm only going to care about people saying yes to Christ, getting them to the kingdom of heaven, and then I'm out of here. My life doesn't reflect anything about the life of Jesus. I just do evangelism. I don't care about plugging them into the church. We need to care about both their spiritual and physical nourishment. The you, again, is plural, so we as a body physically and spiritually care for others. We can't fall into either of these ditches. Let's not divorce proclamation from practice. Let's do both together, being that type of person. So, why let it shine? And he says, let it shine. And why? Well, he gives an answer. Others are going to see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. He's talking about people will see what you're doing and they will believe. They'll hear what you're saying and they'll put their faith in Christ. They too will get to call God Father. This is the first time when the disciples get to have God described as Father. He's described as Father to uh, Jesus earlier on in chapter uh, when he gets baptized, or excuse me, chapter 3, 
But here we see Jesus saying, just as God is my father, he's your father as well. And you can invite people into that father relationship with Christ where they get to hear the good news. They too get to be the light of the world. Jesus is saying this, salt is meant to be salty. And who lights a light and puts it under a basket? Lights are meant to illuminate. Salt is one way and light is one way. You don't change it. And you as my disciples, as my people, are a certain way. You are salt and light. So there's the third point. Expect hardship. Expect hardship, but proclaim Christ anyways. Why? Because that is who we are. It's who we are. feels like a cop-out to kind of get up here and preach and be, be who you are. That's what Jesus says. Who lights a light and puts it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine as the, as the song goes. Don't listen to the fear in your heart that pushes against being a light. Don't listen to it. Okay, you've got a big space on your notes that says how to let your light shine. We've talked about being salt and light, so I want to spend our last bit of time today basically giving us some practical, okay, how do we do this? What do we do? When we, when we mean this. I've got two kind of categories to fit this under. The first one is training. It's going to be smaller than the second, but this idea of training. A lot of people, you know, you may have a desire and say, I want to be able to share Christ with the people around me, but I don't really know how. I've never been trained. Well, it's pretty easy. I think the best training you can get is basically on your own, practice sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus, in 15 seconds. If you can share the good news of Jesus in 15 seconds, you can certainly share it in a longer period of time because it's harder to cram it down in seconds. Here it goes. God created us. He loves us. He is the authority. But we sinned rejecting him and we deserve to die because of that, all of us. God saved us through the death of Christ on his cross. He was the provision for our sins and we have to respond in faith. Believe it or not believe it. There you go. That's the gospel in 15 seconds. I think I did it in 15 but if you can do that here, there's four words to remember. You can write this down. God, that's the first word, God. Talk about who God is. Second word is sin. Describe what sin is. The consequences of sin, which are separation from God. Thirdly, Christ. Christ. I grew up in the church, but if you had asked me, why did Jesus have to die? I would have looked at you blankly. I don't know. Jesus died because the price for our sin was death. So Jesus was paying the price that we owe, taking our punishment. That's Christ. That's the third word, Christ. And the last one is respond. Respond. Somebody, when they hear this, needs to respond in repentance and faith. Those are the two things you need, repentance and faith. There are two sides of the same coin. Faith is trust. It's believing. It's saying, yes, this is true. I'm casting my life upon it. And it's not just faith in, oh, you know, whatever, but faith in Christ, faith in what he's done. And repentance is saying, I turn away from my past and I'm now going to follow Christ. It takes both of those things, faith and repentance. That's what belief actually is. Belief in the scriptures is never described as mere intellectual assent, but it includes a surrendered life. So, 
God, sin, Christ, response. If you can do those four things, you can share the gospel. And there are plenty of verses that go along with each one of those. Another thing you can do in training is know your own story of how you came to Christ and be able to share it in three minutes. And when you share it, share it in a way that clearly articulates the good news of Jesus. Those four words that I just shared, craft a story, your story, that includes those four elements so that if somebody is hearing your story, they will clearly understand what it means to be a Christian. That's an easy way to share the gospel. If you do those two training elements, you'll be incredibly equipped. You'll be able to talk about pretty much almost anything someone will bring up. If somebody brings up a question that you don't know an answer to as you're having a spiritual conversation, a great response is, I don't know. Let me go look that up for you, and can we talk another time? That gets you another chance to talk to them about it, and you practice humility. So you're welcome for that tip. It's like, it's beautiful. Okay, so the first aspect of how to be a light and salt, salt and light, is just have training. Know what you're doing. Here's a really sneaky thing to do, and not sneaky in a bad way. But I I used to say this to my students. I was like, look, find a non-believing friend and say to them, hey, I am trying to learn how to share what I believe in a loving and, and a loving and understanding way and clear way. Can I talk to you about it and use you as a guinea pig and you give me feedback? I'm serious. Like, be humble about it. Don't, don't like bait and switch where it's like, well, I wasn't really looking for feedback. I just wanted to convert you. But that's a great way. Get feedback from a non-believer and you can actually have a real conversation. And it shows your non-believing friend that you actually care. Okay, that's training. Let's talk about this other thing, which is spheres. Spheres. So with your training, think through different spheres of life that you have and people you can talk to. You have been placed by God exactly where you are. God puts you there. And you have different social spheres around you that only you inhabit. Nobody else has the same social spheres as you. So God puts you where you are for a reason. You are there to be salt and light. Here are three particular spheres. Your job. Who do you work with? Your friends. Who do you hang out with? You know, you may think like, well, my friend group, we all have the same friends. Well, you may have a lot of shared friends, but trust me, you don't all have the same friends. You have unique friends, and you may have a friend where you are the only true believer in their life. You may hear that and be like, ah, you know, I don't know if that sounds true. It is. There's a chance that you know somebody and you are the only true believer that they actually know. You are their one opportunity to hear about who Jesus is. God has put you in their life for a reason. Now, the last fear is family. And I want to spend a lot of time talking about family. Because we tend to not think about family, especially those that have been entrusted to our care as people we need to be a light to, our children. You see, we tend to look at being light to our children as, I need to just get them to believe the gospel. I'm going to share the gospel message over and over and over again, which is, which is good. Please do that. Please share the gospel with your children. But we also need to disciple our children and help them walk with Jesus. So there's kind of four practical things I want to give you of what it looks like to be light in your family with your kids. And if you're a single person or you don't have any children, 
I'm, please listen to this anyways, because these are fruitful things that you can do in your life and with the people in your life. This isn't limited to families, although I am specifically applying it to families. These are things you can do with your roommates or with your extended family. Okay, the first one is doing family worship. We may call them family devotionals. The responsibility of walking with God ultimately rests on families. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 7. This is the famous uh, Shema. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So that's kind of like the mantra that Moses is telling them. And then he says this, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So it's this idea, you always need to be talking about the things of God with your children. You don't just drop them off at church and then never talk about what God is doing in their lives. But let's actively ask them questions. Let's actively do family worship, do devotions. Now, what I mean by this, when I talk about this family worship, I think there's basically three things. One is reading the Bible together. Just read it. Two is, and then you can talk about, you know, hey, what did you learn when you read this? Or what do you see? They just kind of read the Bible, ask questions about it. Two, pray. We just pray together as a family. And three, sing a song. That's generally what we do when we gather together on Sunday morning. Those are the three big things, three big rocks. We hear the teaching of the Word, we sing, and we pray. You can do that in your family. It's not complicated. And especially you men, you fathers, this responsibility ultimately rests on you. Lead your family in this. You don't need a seminary degree. You don't need to have more spiritual maturity than your wife. You just need to be willing. Just read it together. And you can ask your wife. Maybe your wife knows more about the Bible than you. Say, hey, what do you see here, honey? What do you, is there anything you've learned or that you can share with us? You don't have to be the pastor. You don't have to have all sorts of smart ideas. Just be humble. Read it together. And I believe God will honor that. So do family worship. Second, just ask questions of your children. What are they learning? How are they growing? Third, share what you're learning. What's God doing in your heart? That's a big thing. I think oftentimes we're kind of scared to do that. We don't want to be broken before our kids. And that's actually the last idea, is specifically be broken. Ask for forgiveness from your children. Often. No matter how embarrassing it is. No matter how little it is. Ask for forgiveness. Model to them what that looks like. So do family worship. Ask questions. Share what you're learning. Be broken. If you do those, I think you will be being a light in your family. Be a light in your family. Okay, so you got your spheres, your job, your friends, your family. Here's an application for all of that. Who is one person you can share the good news with this week? Who's one person? Just one. You're welcome to think of more, but think of one. And I invite you, you know, if you, even if you do this right now, I'm not going to be offended. Text them and be like, hey, I'd love to just sit down with you, hear more about your life. Can I share with you some of the things that I've been processing through, things I've been learning in my church? Then sit down, ask them questions. Get into their life, see what they think, and then see, okay, can I ask you, or can I share with you things about my life, ways that Jesus has changed me? And don't be afraid of reprisal. There may be consequences. person may shun you. Probably not. That's usually rare. If you have a fruitful conversation where you love them well, usually they don't hate you because of it. They're usually thankful. 
But don't be afraid of reprisal because Jesus said that flourishing comes from that, right? Flourishing comes from that. So here's our response for today. You have it in your service order. Lord, may I not shy from the shine. May I not shy from the shine. So let's expect persecution. It's the good life. We are salt in life. We get to herald Christ's kingdom. So let's shine because that's who we are. May we not shy from the shine. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you have made us salt and light. We thank you that we are your children and we can call you Father. Father, we confess that we are often afraid to shine because we are afraid of persecution. We're afraid of being reviled. We're afraid of being slandered. Father, may we believe that indeed this leads to flourishing and that there is a reward that is great in heaven. Help us to see that we are bringing good news and that your kingdom is good and that we get to invite others into it. Father, help us as a church to be salt and light. May we be a different kind of community. May we be a light to the world, a light that is living in darkness. Help us to say no to fear and yes to Christ. May we walk with you and love you. Father, we thank you for the mercy you've shown us and for calling us salt and light. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.